Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Well, today I am beginning a series called The Countdown to Hope uh, because in uh, a few weeks' time uh, it will be Easter. And uh, why do I call it The Countdown to Hope? What is the hope of the Easter season, the Easter story? Um, Why is it important? I would uh, suggest today that in an increasingly secularized culture, the message of the cross, the message of Easter, really makes very little sense outside of the perspective of eternity or eternal life. The platitude, uh, Jesus is the answer, makes no sense to people who have no context for that statement. Because without a perspective on life that includes eternity, the Christian faith really makes no sense. Jesus is the answer, but the answer to what? Jesus is the way, but the way to what? Friends, we've got to understand Jesus' mission on the earth was not to be a teacher or a rabbi, or a nice guy who had great compassion on the poor and the outcast and the marginalized. Friends, Jesus' mission, he came to be the saviour of the world. Okay, but saved from what? John 3 and 16, familiar to many of us. For God so loved the world... That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And friends, this is John's definitive statement on the mission of Jesus Christ. And he presents that mission in the context of eternal life. And when our increasingly secular culture loses sight of eternity, the gospel message loses its context. Now, it's helpful to understand that this is not a new problem. In fact, it was an issue in the early church. There were a group of religious leaders at the time. We read about them in God's Word. They're called the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in eternal life and did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. In fact, I think when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, uh, he alludes to that in 1 Corinthians 15 and 12. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead... Why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. 
And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So Paul is reinforcing the fact that if there is no such thing as eternal life, if there is no resurrection after this life, then our faith in Jesus is absolutely useless. Because without the perspective of eternal life, the gospel loses its its context. So as we go through this series, Countdown to Hope, we need to first understand what that hope is. Friends, it is the hope of a life that does not end when this body dies. It is the hope of eternal life. But I will also acknowledge that hope is not the exclusive domain of people of faith. Everybody needs to live with a measure of hope. I think it's something that God's probably wired into our DNA. We are people who are looking always for hope. I think in part that's probably for self-preservation. It's kind of a mechanism to cope. That hope is necessary to kind of ease our present pain and suffering and sorrow. Because as we all know, life is full of disappointments. It's filled with trials. It's filled with sorrow. It's filled at times with bitterness. And when people go through these times of great anxiety and pressure and pain and worry, when things don't turn out the way that we're expecting, we then look for a future hope. That's what gives us often the strength to go on, to push through. A hope that things will change, a hope that one day things will be different. And we set our hearts then on new beginnings, new opportunities, something better to come. And it is that hope that makes life livable. To live without any kind of hope at all, I think, would cause life just to be totally unbearable. So as we count down to the hope of Easter... As we look at God's gift of Jesus, as we have uh, John's words ringing in our ears, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. What is it we need saving from? Well, let's employ our imagination right now. Imagine right now, that everything in your life was as bad as it could possibly be. Some of you are probably thinking, that's easy. Take everything that has ever happened in your life that has been painful, that has been hard. Roll all of that into one experience and now make it permanent. 
all the pain, all the disappointment, all the failure, all the anger, all the hatred, all the bitterness, all the fear, all the anxiety, times it all by a hundred. And then imagine that there is no possibility of that ever getting better, ever. Knowing that you cannot escape it knowing that you would be constantly tortured by it. Imagine the deepest, most intense uh, physical pain, mental anguish, spiritual and emotional anguish. Imagine all of those experiences all at once. Imagine if you knew that there would never be one moment of relief, that nothing would ever change forever. Well, what I've just really poorly described, and I think undersold it, is hell. Jesus, on many occasions, spoke of a most profound place of suffering. There is actually more said in the New Testament about hell than there is about heaven. And most of that teaching comes from the mouth of Jesus. And I will be the first to put my hand up and say that this is not something that is easy to talk about. It is a topic for many people that seems at odds with the nature and character of God. It is a concept that our world struggles with that a loving God would allow people to be banished to a place of eternal torment. And that fuels skepticism and it fuels unbelief. And yet, friends, can I suggest this morning that the reality of hell is inseparable from the gospel message and we cannot afford to ignore it and we cannot afford to sanitize it. Jesus actually shares a parable about a guy who finds himself in hell or Hades. And the story really has one purpose and it is, serve, it is to serve as a warning. It is to warn of hell. And it is a story about a man who goes to hell, but he's actually surprised to find himself there. We read it in Luke 16 and 19. There was once a rich man who dressed in the most expensive clothes and lived in great luxury every day. There was also a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who used to be brought to the rich man's door, hoping to eat the bits of food that fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the feast in heaven. The rich man died and was buried. And in Hades, where he was in great pain, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. So he called out, Father Abraham, take pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger into some water and cool off my tongue because I'm in great pain in this fire. But Abraham said, remember, my son, that in your lifetime you were given all the good things while Lazarus got all the bad things. But now he's enjoying himself here while you were in pain. Besides all that, there is a deep pit lying between us so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so, nor can anyone cross over to us from where you are. The rich man said, I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house where I have five brothers. Let him go and warn them so that they at least will not come to this place of pain. Abraham said, your brothers have Moses and the prophets to warn them. 
Your brothers should listen to what they say. The rich man answered, that's not enough, Father Abraham. But if someone were to rise from the dead and, and, and go and tell them, then they would turn from their sins. But Abraham said, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone were to rise from death. Now let me say this is a story with so much meaning. Uh, so many nuances, uh, so many threads. We could actually do a whole series on this for weeks and weeks and weeks just on this parable. But this morning, I want to keep to the main theme. The story is about a rich man. He's the main character. He's a religious man. And when Jesus is telling this story, his audience would have related to the parallels. Even in their day back then, they had their own version of what we would call prosperity teaching or prosperity doctrine. Because back then, and as they're listening to this story, in Israel, if you were wealthy and prosperous, it would have been a sign of God's blessing. So your, your position in life, your privilege in life would have been considered... The blessing of God. And then when you have a poor, outcast, disease-ridden man, it would have been considered a curse. So rich people are blessed of God, poor people are cursed of God. That is certainly uh, the teaching that the Pharisees seem to be promoting. These leaders, religious leaders of Israel. And as they're hearing this story, they would have considered this man, the rich man, to be blessed of God. A man who lives his life to the max. A man who enjoys the best that life has to offer. They would have definitely been expecting that the outcome of this story would have been that that guy would have ended up in heaven. And then there's the other man, the despised man, the poor man, a man whose poverty is the very evidence that he is cursed by God and obviously in sin. But Jesus being the master storyteller totally messes with their head and the outcome of the parable is not what they would have expected because here is this poor guy who ends up in heaven. And Jesus is directing this teaching at the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, as he begins to tell this story, they would have seen the rich guy as being the hero. He is the symbol of a God-blessed life in Israel. But this poor man, this outcast, there's no question God has turned his back on him and we also should turn our backs on him. Now, an interesting aside, the Pharisees, they believed in eternal life. They certainly believed in heaven and hell. Not one of them would have looked at themselves and thought, well, my destination obviously is going to be hell. They would have all expected that they would be ending up in heaven. And they would have been shocked and they would have been offended as Jesus unfolds the meaning of this story. Because the Pharisees, again, would have considered themselves to be like the rich man in Jesus' parable. But Jesus was always going head to head with the Pharisees. 
Jesus is always exposing their self-serving, distorted religion, their self-righteousness and their hypocrisy. We read this in Matthew 23 and 13, and this is probably Jesus' most damning conversation with the Pharisees. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert and you, then you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you yourselves are. Down to verse 27. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so Jesus is kind of saying the same thing in this parable. You guys think you've got it all together. You'll think, you think you're going to be in the kingdom of God and you're not. You think you're going to be at that great banquet with Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you're actually going to be on the outside. You're going to be in a place that the Bible says where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now we've got to understand that this story of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, it's not a literal account of two people's lives. And much of this imagery that's unpacked in this parable doesn't actually reflect necessarily what happens. There's lots of conversations that go on that just wouldn't be happening. But again, Jesus is a storyteller. He is a great rabbi and he employs a great rabbinical um, method of teaching, which is to present contrasts and extremes to make a point. And he does it really, really well in this parable. So you have a poor man and a rich man. There's the contrast. The poor man, as the story flips, becomes richer than the rich man ever was and the rich man becomes poorer than the poor man ever was. You have a poor man in suffering and a rich man who's living in luxury, fully satisfied. The story flips. The rich man finds himself in a place of suffering and the poor man fully satisfied. You have a poor man who's tormented and a rich man who's happy. The story flips and you have a rich man who's tormented and the poor man who is happy. You have a poor man in this life who is humiliated and a rich man who is honoured. The story flips and the rich man is now humiliated and the poor man honoured. You have a poor man with no hope, a rich man with all the hope in the world and the story flips and there is now a rich man with no hope and a poor man with hope finally realised. And this parable is a story that Jesus uses to teach an important spiritual truth. And it is an incredible contrast. A rich man on the inside with everything, 
a poor man on the outside with nothing. But there's a really interesting aspect to this story because Jesus in this parable gives the poor man a name. Jesus never gives people names in his parables. In fact, if you flick through all of Jesus' parables, most of them start with now a certain man or a certain rich man. And and they're not given a name. But in this parable, the poor man is given a name. And the name he gives him is Lazarus. Now, that has nothing to do with Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead, the brother of Mary and Martha. Lazarus was a very common name. But the name actually answers the question of why Jesus gave him a name in this parable when you come to understand what the name actually means. Lazarus literally means whom the Lord saved or whom the Lord helped. And it is the perfect name for this man because it actually tells us how he ended up in heaven. Now, we need to take an important detour at this point because we're talking about this today in the context of the countdown to hope. The context is Easter. But Jesus is sharing this story with a group of people, certainly, I would think, probably with a cross in mind. But to this audience... The hope of the cross was not yet a reality for them. So it poses a question. What did a person before the death and resurrection of Jesus, what did a person have to believe in order to be saved? Well, if you read through the Old Testament, it becomes very, very obvious. You have to believe in the one true and living God, that he is totally righteous, absolutely holy, that he is the creator God, the lawgiver, that he is ultimately our judge. You believe that he has given us his law. And the Old Testament says very, very clearly that this is the law of God, that if you break this law, you sin. And if you sin, you are cursed. You are under the curse of sin and death. Now, not one person who has ever lived has been able in and of themselves to keep the law of God, which means the whole of humanity is under the curse of sin and death. Which means that because we have violated the law of God, we are also under the judgment of God and we must recognize our sinfulness. And the Old Testament calls us to a state of repentance. That is... You turn away from your self-ruled life. You turn away from your sin and you turn to God in faith, trusting him for salvation. Knowing that God, as I repent, is willing to forgive me. But on what basis before Jesus' sacrifice, on what basis was God willing to forgive people's sins? God would do that, friends, on the basis of, of a substitute. And what God would allow to happen, he would allow the the sinner to live and the substitute to be killed, to take the punishment of that sin. And it applies to the substitute. And that's what this old covenant sacrificial system meant. It was all symbolic 
of how God would let the sinner live and kill a substitute. And right through the Old Testament, you have this sacrificial um, system of atonement. And so as you read through the Old Testament, you find all of these rituals and this repeated uh, animal sacrifice that was required by law. And animal sacrifice is brought over and over and over again. And it's repeated over and over and over and over again through the Old Testament. Why is it repeated over and over and over again? Simply because every animal sacrificed under the Old Covenant was never enough. Not one of them was the ultimate sacrifice. All this was, was a foreshadowing, a picture of what was to come. And they believed that God would provide that final redeemer, that God would provide that ultimate substitute, that God would provide, he would bring that promised Messiah, the one who would suffer and die once and for all, that he would rise again. And the Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans 3 and 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. That's the hope. So back to the parable. Back to the contrasts. We have an unnamed rich man, a representation of the religious elite, who thought that their privileged position and wealth equated to righteousness, who totally, it seems, ignored what the law of God said, and they find themselves facing the reality of hell. And then you have this man, the poorest of the poor, an outcast. The common assumption was he was cursed by God. But Jesus gives him a name, Lazarus, which means whom the Lord saved or whom the Lord helped. He finds himself in heaven, not through his effort, not through his own self-righteousness, not through his position or standing. He finds himself in heaven as a result of believing the truth that it is about a repentant heart and simple faith in God to receive what only God can provide. The mistake of the rich man in this parable, the mistake of the Pharisees in the day, was they totally underestimated the holiness and the righteousness of God. And they totally overestimated their own standing. 
if you like, they lowered God and they elevated themselves. They underestimated God's holiness and in doing so, they totally underestimated his judgment and his wrath against sin. They were wrong about God and they were totally wrong about themselves. I'm going to invite the team to come back as we close. And I'll close again with the words of Paul. And he writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, Dear brothers and sisters, we can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. We proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and faithfulness in all the persecutions and hardships you are suffering. And God will use this persecution to show his justice and to make you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. In his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted. And also for us, when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven, he will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. When he comes on that day, he will receive glory from his holy people, praise from all who believe. And this includes you. For you believed what we told you about him. So we keep on praying for you. Asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honoured because of the way you live. And you will be honoured along with him. This is all made possible because of the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, as we walk in along this countdown to Easter, to the hope of Easter, I pray that we'd be really, really clear on this. That there is only one way to God. And that is through faith in Jesus. That is in believing in his death and his resurrection. To repent of our sin, of our self-ruled lives and turn to him in faith. To believe that Jesus is your only redeemer and saviour. Saved from what? Saved from the reality of hell. And it is a sobering story. But it is a warning. And this is a huge part of the message of Christianity. And if we leave this part of the message out, then it's not the gospel. 